Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch or grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Rob Mather, who is the founder and CEO of the Against Malaria Foundation, which is consistently rated as one of the world's top charities by organizations such as GiveWell and The Life You Can Save. They have raised over $200 million to date and are making a huge, huge impact on the problem that is malaria, which kills 400,000 people every single day year most of them children i think this has the potential to be one of the most important episodes i do of the podcast you can check out the against malaria foundation at againstmalaria.com and this is a organization that does things different they are very rigorous in their tracking they make sure 100 of public donations buys these long-lasting insecticidal nets that help prevent malaria and the way they distribute and work with partners in different countries and don't do any marketing at all really in the traditional sense, they have zero dollar marketing budget, but because of how they run the organization, how well run it is, they have people coming to them constantly again and again who want to help out, which is though why I wanted to have Rob on the show to actually help him. And if there's any way we can get him on more shows, uh, more podcasts to spread the word about the organization, I think it'd be helpful. Again, againstmiliary.com is where you can get involved, uh, fundraise, donate. Uh, if you have people you know that can help spread the word about the organization that would be amazing the show notes for this episode are just go grind.com slash podcast and you can support the show leave a rating review over an apple podcast helps more people find the show without further ado here's rob mather from the against malaria foundation rob welcome to the show nice to be here yeah happy to have you on here and obviously talking about against malaria foundation which has done incredible work and raised nearly quarter of a billion dollars and 108 million nets for uh fighting malaria but how did this all get started rob uh, amf got started because i'm not very good with a remote control of a television um i was trying to turn off the night, nightly news at about 10 30 at night one evening and i instead switched channels and saw the image of a small child who'd suffered very badly in a house fire when she was two years old she suffered 90 percent burns to her body in fact, the only piece of skin left on her body was the bit beneath her wet nappy because it was wet. So as you can imagine, pretty moving stuff. And um, I'm not ashamed to say I was streaming for an hour while watching this program. It was incredibly moving. And I decided to organize a small fundraising effort to try and help her. So I rounded up a couple of friends and we agreed to swim a distance equivalent to the English Channel together. That's between uh, the UK and France, about 35 kilometers. But because I'm not brave enough or fit enough to do the real thing, um, we decided to do it in a swimming pool. <laughs> and what started as a, a three-person swim quite quickly within the space of um, a number of weeks, in fact, about seven weeks, became a swim that involved 10,000 people uh, in, 100 and, in 150 swims across 75 countries all over the world. And we raised a lot of money, uh, many hundreds of thousands of pounds and um, contributed in a fairly significant way to securing uh, Terry, uh, the little girl's future. Um, and we're very pleased to, you know, to help out in that way. And um, before we'd even done Swim for Terry, as it was called, um, somebody asked me, what are we doing next year? And my rather flippant response on the phone was, oh, let's get a million people to swim. Um, and the lovely <laughs> man who I was talking to, an Australian called Walter Cole, um, said, Terrific. That means we only need 999,998 more people because I'm in. And that's, I guess, how <laughs> MF started. That's incredible. And I have to unpack that story a little bit more. I mean, how do you get almost a million people then, or a million people to swim, even the 10,000 before that? I mean, how did it grow so quickly? Well, the Swim for Terry grew um, because I spoke to my brother-in-law 
who was in Sydney, Australia, around the time that I'd seen the program about Terry, and we were talking about swimming, and I said, Peter, would you do a swim for me? Would you, you know, get in a swimming pool in Sydney and swim the dis- a distance equivalent to the English Channel for a child who suffered 90% burns in a house fire? And his response was, how can I say no? And <laughs> I spoke to my wife that evening and thought, I wonder if we could get half a dozen people in different countries around the world swimming in the same way, and then we can say we're ringing the world with swims for this child. Well, that was the sort of phrase that um, I thought of. And and so, and I'll keep the story very short, but I searched on the internet and, you know, swimming New York, uh, I was looking for a telephone number, up came, you know, a telephone number and a Steve Nelson. And I called Steve Nelson and said, hello, Steve, Rob Mather, daftest question you're going to get all week, but who the heck do I talk to in your city who would be prepared to round up a group of people and on this day from this distance to raise money for this child, 90% burns in the house fire. And, and he said, the word he said to me was the same word that the other six people I spoke to over a period of about... 36 hours I spent probably a minute on the phone two minutes on the phone with each of them was me and I said really and he said you know of course we will and so that developed and then I got a phone call from a guy who landed in Peru who just sat on an airplane next to the brother of Steve and 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 this thing just took off so you know there is a swim for Terry website where people can go and have a look if they're interested but it was just a wonderful reflection of um, people's willingness to help of humanity if you like and I was really really moved by the whole thing um, so that's how swim for Terry grew um, and people get, became involved and and then we moved on to you know we moved on to you know trying to get a million people to swim and you know the answer to that question i guess is i applied my 20 minute thinking um which i do um pretty regularly which is how would i achieve this if i only had 20 minutes now you can have lots of thinking time and you can do some research and you can prepare but once you sort of press the button once you send the first email once you pick up the telephone and make the first call the thinking goes you've only got 20 minutes And so my answer to my own question of how do I get a million people swimming in 20 minutes was I am going to call 20 people and I'm going to spend a minute on the phone with them, with each of them, and I'm going to ask them if they will give me 5,000 people swimming. And if I do that, I will achieve 100,000 people lined up. And that's a credible platform to launch this and see if we can get a million people to swim. And in essence, that's what I did. Real quick on that. Where does that come from? Where does that thinking come from? The idea of that twenty-minute thinking. I, I guess it. I guess it's a desire to have the best possible chance of achieving what you want to achieve, what you, what you're setting out to do, um, and 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 focus on what will work rather than what's easiest. Because if I were to go down to a local school or a local swimming pool and get fifty people or a hundred people, I'm never going to get to a million people. But right. if I, you know, if I escalate the scale and and perhaps communicate the ambition to others who identified correctly might share that ambition and be in a position to help, then I have a chance or we have a chance because it's very much a we thing of, of getting to these bigger numbers. So I guess it comes from how can we have the best possible chance of doing something? And, and that might mean, you know, not focusing on what is at first blush easiest to do. Yes, it makes sense. And how did you choose malaria then as the issue to to kind of tackle here? Well, when I was thinking if we were to get a million people to swim all over the world, and it would be something where you had people involved in many, many countries, um, I just ran through a list of health-based issues. So cancer, heart disease, and one or two others. And I thought, no, first world, relatively large amounts of money going in to support them. Um, 
I'm sure people supporting those causes would argue, you know, more needed. But then I thought about HIV AIDS, malaria, TB, landmines, I was interested in that, um, fresh water, um, diarrhea, things that particularly and largely, particularly in the disease-related ones I've mentioned, affect the developing world, uh, where you can have a quite a significantly larger impact for you know dollars invested or dollars brought to bear. And when I scratched the surface of each of those, um, they fell away apart from malaria. Um, when I discovered that, um, I mean, I've traveled quite a lot in Africa and in Asia and India, Pakistan, and I've, I've come across malaria. Um, not actually had it myself, so I consider myself to be lucky given the time I've spent in malarious areas. But um, yeah, once you scratch the surface and, you know, seven jumbo jets for seven 747s full of children under five were dying every day from malaria. Um, and that's, you know, that's slaughter. And, and I thought, you know, hang on a minute. Um that's a really big number. Who's doing something about it? And there were, to my knowledge, I could find no malaria charities, no charities that focused on malaria. I mean, various charities that focused on malaria or were involved with malaria and in supporting and helping amongst many other things. Um, and when I also discovered that the most effective mechanism of prevention is is a, a bed net, a long lasting insecticidal net, anti-malarial net that costs, that costed at the time 15 years ago when I set up AMF $5. And I thought, that's what I think we should do something about. Um, so that's that's in this essence how I settled upon malaria. Yeah, and, and then knowing that you wanted to make an impact on, on that because it's obviously such a, a massive issue. I mean, to that point, I mean, how big you said seven 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 forty seven every every single day. I mean, that that's an insanely huge huge amount of people. I mean, with that, how did you decide that you want to devote your time to this? I mean, what were you doing at the time? Because people who want to make a difference, like, oh, they may donate a few dollars, but obviously you didn't just donate a few dollars. You you decided to devote almost everything to this. Like, how did you decide that? Let me just capture the numbers because I think you ask a very good question. I mean, the numbers are that malaria kills today about 400,000 people a year and more than 200 million fall ill. Um, so we're down from 2 million deaths 15 years ago, um, but it's still a significant humanitarian issue and you know the, the 747s you mentioned we were at seven 747s we're now at two to three to four depending on exactly which numbers you look at so we're definitely making progress and 70 percent of those deaths are children under five and uh, and so on and you know think about this if you know if we went down to the end of the runway at logan in boston or jfk in in new york or heathrow in london and and, and we saw two 747s i mean nasty image i'm about to present so switch off now if you don't want to you know have this image put in your head but you know, two 747s full of under fives crashing on the runway. And I said, same time tomorrow. I don't think it would take many of us to say, hang on a minute, we've got to fix this. And we can fix it. So to your question, what was I doing at the time? I guess I'd spent 20 years in business in various roles. And um, I'd taken some time uh, off. To, I was between, between jobs, effectively. And I decided I wanted to see if I could get a million people to swim. And you can't do that with weekend work. And so I decided I would take some time off and see if I could get this off the ground. And um, effectively, I thought this was going to be two years. One year to sort of do the work in preparation and see if there were people who would support the idea. And then one year launch it and then one year to make it happen and then go back into a proper job. And unfortunately, that going back into a proper job didn't happen. And so 14 years on, I'm still doing this. That's, that's absolutely incredible. And then with that, obviously, it's not just you doing this. I mean, who when you started this and tried to, to go full time into this, I mean, who is the team around you? How are you building that and having people help you? Clearly, there's people donating, but the team to help you even grow the Against Malaria Foundation. 
So initially, it was we're a very small team. And in fact, initially, um, for that read, for the first 10 years. Um, so uh, a chap called Andrew worked for me. We worked together um, in, in, the, in the business that I worked for before I you know, spent five years in this, this organization and then was moving jobs. And uh, he was my head of technology. And Andrew came on board pretty early on because he'd put together the Swim for Terry uh, website pro bono um uh, you know in his spare time which i was very grateful for and when i moved across to the the you know malaria swim idea you know see if we can get a million people swimming i asked if he would be interested in joining you know full time and we do this together and uh and he said yes and that was you know 15 years ago so we've been working together for 20 years now so it was the two of us really so andrew did all the the technology stuff you know we're, we're really big on leveraging technology and designing things out in many ways and then I did everything else but it was with the help of a lot of people so my philosophy here was I don't want to raise money for, from people to pay for admin and central costs because I think it's much more attractive to all of us if the money that donors give you know goes to do the thing we want it to do in this case buying nets so i was pretty right. shameless in picking up the phone to um, to organizations and saying a lot more politely than i'm about to put it but please will you help me but i'm not going to pay you because you don't need five <laughs> bucks more than a couple of kiddies in africa need a bed net and so in the early days um you know where i had a blank sheet of paper in a sense i had an idea i had no business plan i just walked into meetings with people and said look this is what i'm going to try and do are you interested in helping and um, Citibank agreed to do all our, you know, banking, you know, pro bono, and Microsoft agreed to help pro bono, and PwC agreed to do all our accounting pro bono, and and it is the same today. I mean, we in a sense don't pay for anything um, because we've come across a lot of very terrific people in organisations who, you know, they have kids, they know kids, you know, they get it, um, and they can help. And so the team, in a sense, was was Andrew and me, and then yeah. We we grew the you know AMF to about fifty million dollars a year or thereabouts, and it was about that time. Um, so you know, really, really highly leveraged, I guess, given that we had one cost within the organisation, and that was Andrew's salary. <laughs> I mean, literally, that was it. We didn't pay for anything else: accounting, banking, legal, website translations, you name it. We didn't pay for anything, and so it was just Andrew's salary. So our our central costs as a proportion of our revenues were you know, I mean, minuscule or insanely low. Um, and then we've yeah. grown to seven people over the last few years. And that's that's obviously made you know part of what's made AMF you know one of the best charities in the world, the most effective charities in the world. When you look at different organizations who are kind of judging charities, and because a hundred percent donations go towards nets, and the things you're doing, there's a lot with data and everything, which I want to dig into. Um, but one of the things I want to start with is with the distribution of the nets. How are you choosing where they're actually going, and how do you get the nets to people who need them? So we look first of all at where. Uh, malaria burden is sort of you know high medium to high um, and, I mean that's the you know the most important thing but we're also looking at where there is a gap in funding um, because there are all the other organizations I mean you know, uh, several organizations that that put much more money into into nets and malaria control than we do the global fund is one of them um, you know, the American government you know puts in money through um, through um, the president's malaria initiative and USAID um, so we want to work out that there is a real gap for funding. And then we look at, um, once we've established there is a gap in funding that typically runs to many, many millions of nets and therefore multiply the number of nets by two these days, $2 a net. So um, we put an agreement in place. We have a you know template agreement and we go to the Ministry of Health and 
and if you like, share that with them and say, you know, this is the agreement we'd need to sign. And that's a really important element because we are really, really data focused. I mean, arguably, I'm one of the world's greatest cynics when it comes to charity. And so the way that we (laughs) approach this issue is that we focus on data and we say, again, a lot more politely than I'm about to put it. But in essence, what we say to governments is, please don't ask us to trust you because we won't. But we won't ask you to trust us either. Let's just focus on the data. And so that agreement is, um, you know, is run through with, you know, data requirements, all obviously incredibly confidentially held and so on in terms of individual household level data. Um, So we look to establish an agreement with the Ministry of Health because you have to, when you're distributing millions of nets, you know, partner with the Ministry of Health because this is a, you know, we work at a nationwide level now in the work that we do. And we also look... um, and approach organizations in country uh, that might be um, charities in country or, or commercial organizations in country to help us with independent monitoring because we have a pretty significant approach to monitoring so that we can be really sure that the data we're receiving and what's happening with the nets and so on is all you know really very verifi- really verifiable and we you know we publish that information as well so you know we're focusing on high burden malaria companies where countries where there is a funding gap yeah and and with the nets as as well with i mean there's so so many different areas obviously that you can go into uh, what are some of the the things you're doing to kind of spread the word about actually supporting it in terms of fundraising because you, you mentioned the 50 million dollars but how are you getting the word out about amf to then obviously get funds to then make more of an impact um we're a little bit unusual in that we don't we don't do any fundraising in 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 a way that i think many people would would imagine and we certainly don't do any marketing in a in a traditional sense we've you know our our budget line item for marketing is is you know very precise it's zero we've never spent any money on marketing and i guess the way we've gone around growing and continuing to raise funds is we've just focused on doing what we're aiming to do and let we hope that work speak for itself. So the donors who support us, we're, we're really keen to make sure that donors know what happens to their money. So um, 100% of the public's money goes to buy nets. Um, you know, not a cent comes off the top because it doesn't need to. So it doesn't need to pay for any you know central costs because they're already covered by a couple of donors. And they're very low anyway, but they're covered. And we link every donation uh, that we receive to a net distribution, a very specific net distribution. Imagine the distribution as a bucket that needs money in it um, when we've agreed to fund 4.8 million nets for Guinea. So we've now got to fill it up with $9.6 million. And so we put donations in that bucket from any donors and we can link them to that distribution on the website and lots of information. And so I guess we've taken a lot of people with us over the years. Um, uh, They've liked what we've done. We've always done what we said we do. Um, In a sense, the first report that I give at every board meeting is to address the issue, have we in this board reporting period done everything we said we would do? And I think that's a really important, simple uh, metric to hold us to as an organization. And that means we can report to donors that this is what's happened to your money. It's bought this many nets. It will protect this many people. This is where it's been distributed. And that's meant we've had a, um, you know, really, really healthy you know, um, very, very high level of repeat donations and increased donations. So that support from base donors that's increased and word of mouth um, has been very important to us. And that, in a sense, is a very important bedrock of our support. And the second thing I would say that's been very important for 
um, our growth and leads to funds coming in such that we don't need to go out and do any sort of proactive fundraising is that the arrival about 10 years ago of the effective altruism movement, which you know some listening to yep. this podcast might be familiar with, um, was very beneficial for AMF. And uh, in fact, we, we have pretty good numbers on the impact that's had. And it's north of $100 million worth of support has come through people who um, you know follow and subscribe to you know, the ethos of effective altruism. Um, and so there are a number of organizations, Give Well, The Life You Can Save. There are, there are others giving what we can. Uh, when they were around, um, you know, a few years ago, um, they evaluated us. They asked us for lots of information. We were really happy to give it or pointed to our website because it was already public. And uh, their review of our work, which I, I think is, you know, a really good thing for AMF because it, you know, keeps us on our toes. It, you know, it's the sort of reporting I think, um, you know, really, you know, it holds us, holds us to account, if you like. Um, yeah. Uh, has, has meant that people have, have said nice things about us and directed money towards us. So we, you know, so we, you know, that's, that's really been the source of our money. I, I have, you know, individual meetings with larger donors and so on, but, but mostly this is a very grassroots organization with lots of people in, you know, 189 countries that decide that, you know, we're a good place to, they have confidence in giving us money. Yeah. And that's actually how I heard about you from 80,000 hours, uh, that book, and then leading to altruism of that whole movement and kind of looking into it. And then I think at the end of 2018 started with the monthly donation to AMF and actually looking at the tracking was incredible to see like, oh yeah, you can see exactly what, what project it went towards and what country, which is a huge part of it. And how, I mean, how do you use data and technology and how do you kind of track those things? Cause that must not be an easy thing necessarily, but how do you, how does that play a role, uh, in that aspect of AMF? Well, there are two areas in which we uh, track data. Um, I mean, the most important one is the, the data that surrounds the distribution of the nets. So one of the key things we do, um, and we use technology for this in a, in a variety of ways, is we gather information from every single household that we um, are going to distribute a net to. Um, you might think that that's an incredibly expensive exercise. Um, if I take an example of uh, a distribution of 4.8 million nets that I mentioned uh, a moment or so ago in Guinea, in Western Africa, you're looking at about 1.2 million households. Now, our partnership with the Ministry of Health there means that they activate the health system, if you like. So there might be a few people within a health center that will take several weeks in a part of a very organized campaign, you know, centrally organized and spread across the country, where health workers go to in every single household in a series of villages and gather information like how many people are here and how many sleep, sleeping spaces do you have. That information is brought back and ultimately is, you know, is either collected on electronic devices um, or it's paper-based information put into a, a database. We have, therefore, a very good um, sort of, we have sight of the data that's going to govern where nets go. Um, and that's really important information to look at. And we use technology to to manage that process. We've our own bespoke systems in-house, um, so we don't spend money on lots of technology companies. Um, you know, that's what Andrew does. Um, that's his expertise, and has built some yeah. you know really effective systems. So there's a there's a there's a distribution managing registration information, and you know when nets are distributed, matching marrying that up to how many nets did actually go to that household. And so we have. Lots of lovely data running into millions of records, typically um, across a distribution, and then we have a whole use of technology in managing many, many aspects of of what we do. Um, certainly, all the donation side of things. You know, there's a lot of technology that just manages. You know, it's all locked down confidentially. We don't hold any credit card details, but you know, donor histories of you know 
what they've what money they've given to us um, those histories are you know in the hands of the donor so they can see exactly where their nets have gone and then we leverage technology in other ways so um, an example that has been really important for me a number of years ago is that we used to work with um, PricewaterhouseCoopers and they used to uh, allocate three people for about four weeks to do our accounts um, and to help us with our accounts and prepare them for um, audit because you know that has to be done in the UK and in America and in Canada and in Australia and 12 countries in which we're a registered charity so yeah if you remember that f- you know the sort of four times three you've got you know 12 man weeks work of person weeks work of effort there um, and a lot of effort on our side to prepare materials and so on um, our thinking a bit like the 20 minute thinking I referred to earlier was how do we not just get that down to well how do we get it down to 20 minutes and the answer to that was let's use technology such that we produce our accounts and all the supporting documentation across nine countries across 12 countries uh, within nine hours of the end of our financial year and it's nine because I'm asleep for seven of them and then I write the commentary you know, <laughs> sort of in the morning and the point being we've used technology to just completely design out you know a task and that means that we don't need to employ another person and have money from donors go and fund that person you know we've just designed the system so it's and there are other benefits we can put our accounts online live real time um right and so that builds confidence you know we think um, or we're, we're told in what we do because we're being very transparent with what we do so technology is a really really important part of what we do um all the way from you know the the donations initially received, distributing them and managing that whole process and indeed many of the admin and reporting um, elements that surround what we do. Yeah, and that makes it obviously one of the one of the best charities because of that. There is a, lot, a level of trust knowing that everything, everything with their money, one, they know where their money is going, you know, when people have devoted funds to the to AMF, but also um, they, they know that you guys are doing a good thing with what, what you're doing, running the actual business behind it or like the organization behind it. And and with AMF as well, I mean, what there's many challenges, I'm sure, but what are some of those challenges that you've you've encountered over the last 15 years of of running this? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I I sort of think we haven't we haven't had any. I mean, is that is that am I allowed to say that? Um, in the <laughs> one of the thing one of one of the one of the things that I guess I did right at the start was I approached people and said you know, please, will you help, you know, would you offer some advice and guidance? And I guess a sort of wider team was built, you know, a volunteer and a pro bono team. And we didn't really have any problems with that. And so we built this wonderful group of supporters who assisted. Um, and that allowed us to, you know, to move forward. We, we gained money through World Swim. Um, you know, I, I phoned 20 people and 20 people said yes. Uh, I'm not saying there wasn't a lot of hard work and research and thinking about how I'm going to approach people, but, you know, 20 wonderful people said yes. So, we, you know, we had World Swim take off. Um, uh, you know, strategically, I had 12 people giving me 5,000 uh, swimmers when I then phoned the president of Speedo and said, <laughs> can I come and see you? Um because that was the right point at which to call him, a lovely man called Simon Ryder. And I went to see him and said, you know, this is what I'm going to try and do. And I've got nothing apart from 12 organizations that have said they're going to help me. You know, the you know groups in the UK, America, Australia, and Canada, and a variety of other, New Zealand, and a variety of other countries. And he said, swimming global, terrific cause, no brainer, we're in. And that gave me, in a sense, um, or brought in the support of, 
not all, not every, but a very very large number of Olympic gold medalist swimmers in the world who are you know attached to speedo and and who were again wonderful in embracing and saying yeah we'll help we'll help out. So I guess world swim against malaria and then ultimately AMF grew um, uh, sort of quite smoothly. You're not going to ever mess up, however, on the money you raise. Um, you might raise yeah. less than you hoped. Where you mess up is on 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 how you what you do with that money and and in our case operations and so I guess the you know the the answer to your question is you know what the challenges are along the way there have been challenges in making sure we do a good job of identifying exactly where we're going to spend our money who we're going to partner with um, you know when you when we're dealing with partners we've got to do a good job and sometimes it is a challenge to you know, you've got to look at the leadership of organizations, their experience, the resources, their attitude to accountability. And and in that domain, you don't always find, you know, the right organization to work with in the first interview. You know, you've got to go through a number of people before you say, aha, these are the people we want to work with there. Um, I think accountability is something that comes with a cost um, as viewed by um, some of the countries we're operating in because we're requiring to, them to do things, to share information that they're not, um, you know, normally doing or haven't done before. Um, we've come across really good people in, in almost, well, almost all or all of the countries we've, we've worked in who get it and say, we understand you wish to be accountable and that, you know, helps, you know, the flow of funds such that you can fund nets for our country. We don't collect this information, but we're prepared to do it because we can adjust our systems a little bit and we're happy to share it with you. And so sometimes there are challenges around taking our partners in country from a place where they're doing things in a certain way and we'd like them to do them in a slightly different way, not a way that completely yeah. changes what they're doing. Those are some of the um, so the challenges normally are around, you know, and there are a myriad of them are around operations, but they're relatively small ones that, you know, we have to step back sometimes and say, okay, you know, how do we, how do we achieve this given, you know, this organization can't help us. We've got to find another one. Um, but we've been, you know, I'd say we've been fortunate in that we've had a lot of people buying into what we want to trying to do and have helped us and that's really smoothed the road yeah rob how do you kind of view short-term versus long-term thinking with amf um well we do both um and i guess we allocate um i hope enough time to to each um and i, I guess we prioritize our time as, as necessary i mean i'd say that overall we do short and medium-term thinking um so you know an example that would be you know, short-term thinking is how do we achieve X? How do we improve system Y today and over the next few weeks and months because we want to be more efficient in how we do something? Um, and I guess our medium term might be uh, in which countries is there going to be a, a, a net need that we can help out with and how do we prepare for that? Because we, um, you know, we may be looking in terms of the medium term at funding nets that are going to be 18 to 24 months away in terms of when they're distributed. So we need to gather data, speak to people in country, um, you know, or look at how we need to strengthen our own team uh, internally at AMF in the next, you know, six to 18 months. And, you know, do we need to look out for individuals that, you know, we're working with in some way that are volunteering and, and we might want to say, look, you know, these are the sort of people that might, you know, be happy working within AMF full time. Um, and I suppose when it comes to long term, you know, we stay up to date as much as we can regarding issues that affect us in the medium and long term. So, 
vaccine research, gene drive technologies, um, both of which could play a major part in malaria control in years to come, but aren't now, but there's work happening. So I think we're more in the in the short and medium term dealing with things today and in the coming months rather than thinking multiple years out. Yeah. And, and with that too, then, I mean, with obviously you're, you're, you're distributing nets all across the different areas in need. And ultimately it comes down to, is it just a matter of funds that you get more nets to cover every area? Like how close are we to kind of filling that need? You know what I mean? In that capacity, like uh, how much money would be needed to donate? You know what I mean? To yeah. actually, the, the answer to that question is um, hundreds of millions more dollars per year. Um, I mean, the estimate at the moment is that the gap in funding for nets plus non-net costs, the non-net costs are shipping, registration, distribution, um, uh, and we're roughly talking about $2 per net and $2 for all the other costs, so $4 for a delivered net, if you like, is going to yeah. be of the order of five, six, seven, eight hundred million dollars over the period, over the next three-year period, 2021 to 2023. And so divide that by four, you're looking at, you know, 200, you know, 150 to 200 million nets, double that number in terms of the people that sleep under each net, two under each net. You're looking at, you know, hundreds of very large numbers of people that, you know, with the <laughs> funds that look as though they're going to be available um, because they're in a sense allocated in advance by some of the major organizations and countries that contribute to malaria control we're looking at hundreds of millions of people that are going to be not protected and you can just i'm afraid run the numbers in terms of how many will die and how many will fall sick and the loss of productivity because if people are sick they can't farm drive teach function and therefore they're not being productive productive members of society i mean this is a humanitarian issue for issue first but it's also an economic issue in fact it's a really good investment because for every million dollars we spend effectively fighting malaria we improve the gdp of the you know of the the countries in which you know that money is brought to bear by $12 million. It's around that number. I mean, some people argue it's higher, some lower, but it's that sort of number. So we're looking at big, there's a big funding gap and it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. Um, and it's a, it, the, the flip side of a challenge is it's an opportunity. And so I look at this and say, the amount of money for malaria control that in total is probably about $5 billion a year that is needed and we have a lot less than that at the moment. It's probably not above $2 billion a year. So there's a big gap in there. So it's not just yeah. the cost of the, the nets, it's other things as well that are needed. Um, you know, the, the drugs people take when they do fall sick, it's really important we have enough of a supply of those. And we, in many cases, we don't. We don't have enough money for rapid diagnostic testing kits. Really important. So you know that you're giving you know, pills to the right people who have actually got malaria. There's a lot of work going on to try and fill that gap. Um, and I look at the landscape and think a relatively small, I mean, a tiny, not a relatively small amount, what am I saying? A tiny <laughs> amount of money, a number of tens of millions only comes from, you know, the public, you know, the, or otherwise known as the private sector, you know, not governments. And so I think the opportunity in front of us is if we and others who are involved in malaria control can make the case to the public that this is a really good place if you're considering where where to put your donations. This is a really good place to you know to to um, pass money that will have impact and is accountable and so on. There is a wonderful case we can make that I hope will increase the you know the tens of millions into hundreds of millions in in the near term years to come because the lives saved 
illness averted, GDP improved, productivity improved, is in, I think is a very, very powerful case. And in fact, um, you know, I think people are waking, you know, are becoming more aware of that. And, and, I, and I hope we'll see the sort of the multiplier in donations that I'm talking about in the, in the, in the coming few years. Yeah. And Rob, how can people get involved and how can people, what can people do to help out? I mean, you, obviously you mentioned you have a, a seven person team and there's, there's so many partners all over, but how can people get involved? How can people help out if they're interested? Um, well, if it's interested in uh, MF, then againstmalaria.com is our website. Um, obviously our main currency, so to speak, using the general term is money, because if we don't have money, we can't buy nets. Um, other ways that people help is we often receive emails from people volunteering their time and expertise, which are great to receive. Um, we often, we can't um, you know, connect with every volunteer, but somebody will come forward and say, I've got a, you know, expertise in this and I'm, you know, I'm willing to you know, give this amount of time if you've got a need. And, and sometimes we'll go back to those, those volunteers and say, that would be terrific if you would be willing to take on you know, this mini project over the next two months and do this, that will you know, save us time or put us in a position where we've got some information earlier. Um, so getting in touch and saying, happy to volunteer some time. Um, I guess my favorite, um, my favorite meeting or dinner party would be if um, I could sit down with some people that have got very, very large amounts of money. Um, I mean, there are people who are very fortunate in this world that have got many, many billions of dollars. Um, right. So I suspect there might be relatively few people in that category um, listening now because there are relatively few people on the planet's surface that have that sort of uh, those sort of resources. But um, people connecting us um, to individuals with very large amounts of money um, is a, a particular interest of mine at the moment because we've got um, a $190 million gap in front of us and we've only got a number of tens of millions of dollars to allocate to it. Um, so I'm being slightly whimsical here in saying that sometimes um, people hear about what we do and they say, yeah, I'm happy to make a donation, but do you know what? I also know some people that you might like to talk to or AMF like to talk to who have got very significant sums of money. And I hope um, you won't mind me mentioning that in that it's it's uh, because of the gap being so large at the moment, we're wanting to try and continue to, you know, to grow the bedrock of support we have um, from people like you and me who give $10 and 20 euros and 30 Swiss francs. I mean, that's really the thing that sustains us. But we're also interested in reaching out and coming across people who've got very, very large amounts of money who might be interested in hearing what we're doing. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. And that makes me think right away to the question of, I mean, how do you then think about how you spend your time, you specifically spend your time in the organization? Because in theory, you could have someone focused, you or someone else focused entirely on getting big donors that are those multi-billion dollar donors that could help solve this, you know, close that gap. How do you look at how you spend your time in the organization? It's a good question. And thinking about the the fundraising aspect, I, I mentioned earlier how we don't do any marketing. In fact, one of the things that's you know been the case, I don't know whether we've made a mistake in doing things this way, but we've never gone out and we've never solicited for funds per se. I mean, I, I don't think I think I could honestly say I've never gone out and you know solicited for money and said you know please will you give money. <laughs> we generally like to do it another way, and that that is we respond to people who approach us because I think that is I just feel personally more comfortable that that's the right you know, that that's the way I like to do things. If somebody expresses an interest in what we're doing and would like to hear more, 
then we explain what we're doing such that they hear more. And then, of course, it's their decision whether they would like to, you know, contribute and support what we do. So um, I guess I am the person who primarily responds to those sorts of, you know, connections with people who want to hear more from us. But we don't, we haven't gone down the route of employing somebody who is a fundraiser, if you like, because we rather would like it to be incoming rather than us going out and and being, you know, and, and trying to solicit funds in that way. And as I say, we, we may have made a mistake doing that, but it's it's been, you know, it's been okay so far. So how do I spend my time? I guess I, I you know, I, uh, I prioritize. I mean, there is, that happens every day uh, because there are always important to you know change the order in which certain things are done responding to um, things that may come up that are more important I guess I juggle um, uh, fundamentally I guess I do the best I can um, with the time available but my time is spent across a, a whole series of areas and um, various day to day and week to week um, and so I you know I, what do I spend my time I time on I, I I'm considering issues relating to strategy um, so thinking time is pretty important um, you know including thinking about how we as an organization get better become more efficient and use people's money more wisely. Um, uh, deciding which uh, distributions we fund with colleagues, um, liaising with donors, uh, we liaise with so many different organizations, co-funders, ministries of health, partner companies, net manufacturers. Um, uh, we have a malaria advisory group. I uh, liaise with individual members of that group to give us advice. Very important to get you know, specific knowledge um, in certain areas. Um, very important that we as a team, and I'm involved in this, keep across operational issues. Um, as I mentioned before, we're not going to mess up on the fundraising, but we are on the way we go about our work and distributing nets. So that's a you know a core part of what we do. Um, technology I mentioned is really important, so I steer the technology development and, and prompt things in that domain. Um, I'm involved in dealing with data. You know, I look at data. You know, not at a very very granular level, but um, you know we have experts doing that. You know, even within our seven person team um you know some of the thing you know it's really important to me actually that i write to every donor that gives us more than 200 dollars. it's it's an artificial yeah. you know threshold uh but you know you have to draw the line somewhere um um i have the help of technology to do that um because it would be inefficient sending you know single emails out but i see them all i you know author them all if you like um and that's a very important part of um you know, us going back to it's, it's really the only contact we have with donors in a sense in writing to them and saying thank you. We don't write and say thank you. And by the way, would you give us more money? We, we don't we never say that never would we um, going back to my previous point about not not listing. So um, I guess there's a philosophy that we don't proactively go out and seek money. We hope that what we do and what other people say about us, we think that's the best form of marketing because it's independent it's not us saying yeah you know so so there's a you know i'm sure some i i suspect uh, you know one or two people listening to this might think you know ramf going about this the right way um in that they could be more dynamic aggressive and so on but we we don't seek to do that we hope people will come across us and think you know we like what these guys do you know and, and want to find out more yeah, and then people will do that for you. <laughs> I mean, like I, I obviously became interested in, uh, for a while and then started donating, but then also even more recently as I reread that book and read more about what you're doing, it's like, okay, wait, how can we do more with this? It's obviously such a huge issue. And as you mentioned, you made so much progress already though. Through, through what you've done, clearly it's, it, it, whether people think it's the right way or not, you've done a lot and made a lot of impact through the way you have and be, you know, become one of the, one of the best charities because of what you're doing and made such an impact. I mean, 
yeah, there's just so much, so, so much you've done. And it's, uh, it's curious to see like what happens in the future. I, one of the questions I'm at, um, we're thinking about too, is if someone wanted to either start a charity or uh, thinking of a, an issue that maybe wasn't malaria, but one of the other issues you were kind of thinking of, I mean, how would you even, what would you even tell them about, about that or how to even start? Uh, oh, it's a good question as well. Um, I mean, often this is framed as, um, uh, as how do I, you know, how do I have impact? I want to set up a charity. I want to do something. I want to have impact. Um, and, and I'm often, I often think, um, you can have impact in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, it does depend on what impact means. I mean, you know, doctors and nurses make an impact every day, uh, you know, on people's lives, you know, they either save them or improve them. Um, you know, te- teachers make a fundamental impact on, on their students and, teaching them inspiring them and so on but if it comes down to people are thinking about you know charity um um you know there's joining a charity there's setting up a charity um i guess i probably think a little bit more about i mean joining a charity is perhaps you know an easier one and that it depends on people's uh you know preferences and what they're interested in and what they're passionate about as to you know who they might apply to and 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 what role if it's setting up a charity um and somebody feels that you know, they really want to go and set up their own thing and, and help in that way. Um, often what I think is that whilst there is absolutely no size that fits all because everybody is different, I think for many people there will be relevance in um, building skills, you know, particularly if they're, you know, coming out of university or in their teens or in early 20s in over a number of years. Um, and some of the things I've you know, I reflect on over, you know, people I've come across who in the in the charity sector who I think have been, you know, really effective, really good at what they do. And if I would try and distill down to some of the things I've seen in those people, they they clearly know how to get things done. Um, they're very comfortable with numbers. Um, they're really good at persuading people to support them. Um, you know, they are really capable when it comes to doing good analysis, um, which might you know, it's not necessarily numbers analysis, but is identifying the things that matter, um, prioritizing, um, which leads to making good decisions, maybe. Um, they're good at negotiating well, which doesn't mean winning and somebody else losing, but negotiating well is often a win-win. You know, it's a bit cliched, but it is, that's the sort of thing that builds long-term relationships. Um, often the people I've come across that have set up charities um, or a very senior working within them is that they, you know, get on really well with people. They're really likable. They're nice. Um, uh, yeah. Often my advice to people is be nice. <laughs> I mean, it's, um, <laughs> it goes a long way. Um, and they've, you know, developed experiences and skills about how to run things. So I think that that's one of the things that I would, you know, talk to um, people about. Um, and you, and you can you can build these skills and and develop these experiences in in so many different environments. I mean, it might be in sales, it might be in operations, it might be in finance, law, marketing. Um, it might be in teaching, it might be in the manufacturing industry, it might be in consulting, it could be in all sorts of ways. Um, I focus more on the sort of the skills people are building, um, particularly when I interview people and, 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 and look, you know, talk with people about coming to join AMF. Um, and if somebody, you know, can build a variety of those skills, I mean, not all of them, I mean, I'm not sure I've come across anybody who's got all of them, but um, you know, a few <laughs> people have all of them. But you know, if you've then got a great idea that you're, you know, or you've got an idea you're passionate about, I mean, hopefully it will ultimately become you know a great idea, and you've got a plan and a and a and a, and a project, or you know, as the commercial people would call it, if you've got a product, um, 
you know you bring together those things you know the the passion the plan the you know the product you've and all these skills you've built you've got a really good chance of achieving something um so um you know some people decide to go and work in a charity um to develop some of these relevant skills um I think probably the most effective people I've seen who've set up charities um, have not worked within a charity for very long. They've actually had um, a significant, you know, business career, for want of a better phrase, over a period of, you know, five or 10 or 15 or 20 years. And they built these sorts of skills that equip them and make them feel confident that they can embrace the setting up a charity challenge. Rob, you've mentioned this already, but uh, where can people go to learn more about you and uh, what you're doing with amf against malaria.com perfect rob thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show my pleasure